Monstrous piece of crap is an understatement. Thank you. Hello, welcome back to another episode of Lyrics for Lunch, the show that always knows the frequency, Kenneth. <laughs> this is a show where I, of Eve Rubenstein, and my co-host, Lindsay Tucker, did I do that right? Nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, go do, do deep dives into famous history of famous songs. Sometimes we do it while drinking. Um, deep dives into the into the weird, wild histories and future histories of famous songs and today is no exception how are you doing Lindsay? it's been a day and sure. a half sure has. yeah so as some of you have heard i've i have an airbnb and there was um a credit crowd frauder credit crowd fraud yeah this guy who's been defrauding people and stealing their credit card numbers and then staying in airbnbs oh, and then obviously like the person who owns the credit card does the transaction like the cash back so yeah then, they don't want to pay so they don't get fucked which is good they should not but i just got fucked yeah. um on a four four night five day stay over valentine's day and my house is always booked so that definitely would have been booked so we just lost a big sum of money and they like trashed the house broke a bunch of glasses the smell of marijuana was so strong that my cleaning company was like we don't know if we can turn this over in time for your guest that's coming today because like we have an ionizer but it smells so bad in here and the house doesn't even have carpet it only has one little piece of carpet on the stairs otherwise it's all tile now needs to be replaced (laughs) yeah but like imagine like how much weed they must have been smoking when there's there's sliding doors on every floor. Yeah, why? 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 Even, why? <laughs> you had like the sequel to Zola in your <laughs> in your house this weekend. That's my day. And Aviv, tell us about your catastrophe. Yes. So yesterday, I I came back from from work to find the uh the oven the stove top like clicking like someone had tried to turn it on but like stopped halfway and the house reeked of gas and there was like an entire tray of brownies that was on the counter covered and that was just like missing and the dog little chubsy trash dog was (laughs) sitting politely in the middle of the room just like looking at us as we walked in the door and so my my man big chubbs energy had had eaten like a lethal amount of chocolate we called the animal hospital we rushed him over there they induced vomiting the the med tech showed me pictures of how much he threw up which was a lot and they um weirdly so like the at the animal hospital at the animal clinic um they will give your dog fluids if they have to do all this stuff to them but they do it subcutaneously which means under the skin and i thought that you weren't you know i thought it was like gonna just be like an injection of like an iv right but uh have you has this ever happened to you have 
has your dog ever gotten subcutaneous fluid for any reason? Tell me about the fluids. Subcutaneous fluid. So they injected uh, like like two liters of fluid into his back, and he was walking around with like a hunch, like a like a like a rubbery Jello hunchback for weird. a couple of hours. Weird. Did it you was take so photos? Weird. Why no. wasn't this on Instagram? Because <laughs> not not a not a good one. But I think <laughs> I'm making a list of all the things that he's eaten this week, and that's gonna that's gonna go on Instagram. Okay. Big big Chubbs energy almost blew up the building. <laughs> But tonight, today, whenever you're listening to this podcast, right now, we are going to talk about, I, I don't know, man, this story is wild. And um, I saw like a little hint of this on TikTok, and I knew that I had to do this for this week. Um, what are we talking about today, Lindsay? We're talking about REM and what's the frequency, Kenneth? Correct. So are you familiar with this song? I am. So when I was in like, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade, I remember my friend uh, Will getting the CD and always playing the song. I can't remember a single other song from the cd but i bet you if you like played some i would oh, we'll, t- we'll talk about what's on the cd but don't, i looked at the worry. track listing just to see what the names of the songs were to be if i was like oh yeah that one no <laughs> didn't remember a single one but what the frequency can it the show i remember that one that's sure. the one he always played <laughs> so i i had i knew the song but not super well um and i'm assuming you know some of our listeners are are similar so let's take a listen to REM's What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Also, as I told you in our text, there's this part in Now and Then when Christina Ricci is like, hey, Kenny, where's the fire? And they're going to this pop-up baseball game, and it just reminds me of this. What's the frequency, Kenneth? The show been so drained. play a quick round of doesn't slap i like it yeah i like it it's it's peak 90s for sure i mean i wouldn't call it like the ultimate slap it could slap more but But it could slap more Culture is not your costume, man. (laughs) 
yeah, that's, really... it's called a tremolo. So it, it rapidly uh, lowers and raises the volume. It's like a country music thing. Which makes sense because R.E.M. is from Georgia. History. Geography. Geography. Social studies. Civics. All right. Great. So, Lindsay, let's yes. do a quick. It's this is a uh, you know some some songs that we do. It's really easy to hear and understand the lyrics. Some of them not so much. This one, I I don't know what the I fuck you're saying. Any. Right. So, other than what's the frequency canon? So let's right. do a dramatic reading of your of the lyrics of this song. Why don't you give us a start here? Okay. What's the frequency, Kenneth? Is your benzedrine? Uh huh. So. Benzedrine, for those of you who don't know, is like a is like a amphetamine. It's like it's like speed. She's perfect in a fucked up way that all the magazines seem to want to glorify these days. Amazing album, no skips. <laughs> Please continue. I was brain dead, locked out, numb, not up to speed. I thought I'd pegged you an idiot stream, tunnel vision from the outsider screen. I never understood the frequency. Uh huh. You wore our expectations like an armored suit. Uh-huh. I'd studied your cartoons, radio, music, TV, movies, magazines. Richard said, withdrawal and disgust is not the same as apathy. A smile like a cartoon, tooth for, tooth for a tooth. You said that irony was the shackles of youth. You wore a shirt of violent green. Uh-huh. I never understood the frequency. Uh-huh. I'm so confused because I always thought he was saying, like, what's the frequency, Kenneth, the show? But even if that's not the right words, is your Benzedrine doesn't sound like the show. Yeah, I don't. I mean, like, is your? Like, he's like, there's oh, like a is your Benzedrine. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, okay. It's coming to place now. What's the frequency, Kenneth? Is your Benzedrine butterfly decal, rear view mirror, dogging the scene? You smile like the cartoon, tooth for a tooth. You said that irony was the shackles of youth. You wore a shirt of violent green. I never understood the frequency. You wore our expectations like an armored suit. I couldn't understand. Yeah, and so it kind of repeats there until the end. So, Lindsay, what is, what is this song about? Is one of the band members or the writer of the song named Kenneth? No. This is why you wanted the history of of REM. You wanted to know if one of them was named was Kenneth. So there's Michael, Mike, Peter, and I think one other person, Bill Barry. This seems like I totally don't fucking know. <laughs> Maybe it was like a teacher or somebody they looked up to. Who... Listeners, by the way, there was like a, an entire minute of silence as Lindsay was staring. <laughs> I'm going to cut it out of the show, but... An entire minute of silence of Lindsay just staring at the lyrics like, uh, <laughs> okay, a teacher, someone I look up to. Who has, or even maybe just like a stoner friend that they had written off. Um, But if it's saying like you wore our expectations like an armored suit, that's why I felt like it would be more of like a teacher kind of person. And then I'd studied your cartoons, radio, music, TV, movies, magazines. Richard said, withdrawal in disgust is not the same as apathy 
So the interesting thing about this and and the way that the lyrics are written is what's the frequency Kenneth is in quotes and it's and called everything else. your benzedrine, right? Isn't he saying like the quote what's the frequency Kenneth is whoever you are, whoever this person is, it's their is, benzedrine. Is your speed, right? So we don't know if he's talking to Kenneth, he's a talk he's talking about someone who's talking to Kenneth. This is from <laughs> I don't know if I should read the Okay, I'm not going to read. This is for Mental Floss. I'm not going to read the title. I'm not going to read the title of the article. Yet. Yet. I love Mental Floss. I need to know the title later. Mm -hmm. About 11 p.m. on the night of October 4th, 1986, CBS anchorman Dan Rather was walking along Park Avenue in New York on the way back to his apartment. Just as he neared the building's entrance, he was accosted by two well-dressed men. One asked... What's the frequency, Kenneth? Rather <laughs> to, replied. To Dan Rather. Ra- the Dan Rather. Yes. <laughs> he rather replied, you must be mistaking me for someone else. With that, the man knocked Rather to the ground. And as he kicked and punched him, he repeatedly asked over and over again, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Rather called out for help, and a moment later, as the doorman and the building super arrived on the scene, the assailants fled. The police took a statement, but no one was ever arrested or charged. So this is from the Mental Floss article called How Dan Rather and a Homicidal Time Traveler Inspired REM's What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Wow. Please continue. (laughs) So back to mental flaws. So was it just a random unprovoked attack, a case of mistaken identity? Were the attackers some kind of secret agents delivering a message to rather to back off of a particular news story? At the time, he was researching the Iran-Contra affair, which was set up to expose new information. Rather himself had no answers. He just said, I got mugged. Who understands these things? I didn't make a lot of it at the time, and I don't now. I wish I knew who did it and why, but I have no idea. This is what he's. This is what he said in '86, right? So, okay. so, um, nearly 40 years ago. There is also a theory that Dan Rather maybe misheard his assailant's words or even invented them. After all, he was known for like colorful, off-the-cuff analogies and descriptions that became known as Ratherisms. One of the uh, an example of the, one of these Ratherisms is this thing is as tight as the rusted lug nuts on a '55 Ford. That sounds like a racism. Yeah, or you would sooner find a tall, you would sooner find a tall talking broccoli stick to offer to mow your lawn for free. So just like kind of an old old manism, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So maybe he misheard, right? Perhaps. And some people were skeptical that it even happened at all. Why? Dan Rather is a national treasure. He is a national treasure, but (laughs) after the uh, attack in '86. Dan Rather's critics lumped the incident together with another episode where, this is from the New York Times, after the attack in 1986, Mr. Rather's critics lumped the incident together with a subsequent episode in which Mr. Rather stomped off the set, leaving network time with six minutes of dead air, and this was like, these are all signs that he was losing his cool. So this is, this is about that incident. On September 11th, 1987, Dan Rather walked off the set in anger just before a remote evening news broadcast from Miami where Pope John Paul II had begun a rare U.S. tour because a U.S. Open match was being broadcast into the time schedule. Uh, It was like running long and it 
was bumping his news segment. So he was upset that the news was being cut into to make room for sports. And he discussed it with the sports department. Rightfully so. Yeah. And he discussed it with the sports department and made it clear that if the newscast didn't start on time, that CBS Sports should just fill the entire half hour. Right? If I can't start my news on time, you just take the whole fucking half hour. Fuck you. Totally. Right? So the... The match was Steffi Graf and Lori McNeil, and the coverage ended sooner than expected. It ended at 6.32, so it was only two two minutes late, but Rather had already disappeared, and the what happened was that CBS, agree, CBS Sports agreed to break away immediately after the match instead of running commentary, yada, yada, yada. But over 100 affiliates were forced to broadcast six minutes of dead air, and the next day Rather apologized for leaving the anchor desk. Uh, unattended the following year this was like a this was like a this is this was a scandal back then because the following year dan rather was set to interview vice president bush right ronald reagan's vice president was george herbert walker bush before he became president and so rather was interviewing president vice president bush about his role in the iran contra affair so he was like really trying to go after him because Vice, uh, former vice president, former president George Herbert Walker Bush was the ex-head of the CIA. He had some some shit, right? So Rather asked Vice President Bush about his role in the Iran-Contra affair during a live interview, and Bush responded by saying, Dan, how would you like it if I judged your entire career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? Now, this happened because Roger Ailes, the founder of Fox News, had a mole at CBS who alerted him that the goal was to take, Bu- that Rather's goal was to take Bush out of the presidential race with a tough interview on Iran Contra. And Roger Ailes alerted George H.W. Bush on the cab ride over and fed him that seven minutes line. The aftermath of the interview showed the episode was a boost for Bush and potentially could have delivered him the Republican nomination for president. Hmm. Let's think about the consequences of seven minutes. I think it was less than seven minutes. It was six minutes. Thank you. Six minutes of dead air. But it doesn't matter. Print the legend, right? So let's think of the consequences. Rather doesn't walk off stage walk off camera in eight in september of 87 george bush doesn't have that gotcha answer in early 88 he he might not become president dukakis did a lot to shoot himself in the foot but like we don't have him we don't have his son as a president and so what the new york times is saying is we can even go further back and say that the attack in 86 may have contributed to the idea that rather was like losing his mind or losing his cool behind the anchor desk totally i'm on board with that i'm also though annoyed at the american people for equating six Mm. minutes of dead air to hw's involvement in the iran contra exactly But it, but it, it's not. It's it's that he was so quick on his quote unquote quick on his feet, and he had that retort. He's such a smart guy. He should be president. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah. But there was a real Kenneth. Come again. There was a real Kenneth. Tell us. So this is from DangerousMinds.net. It was friggin' weird. So weird that some people thought that Dan Rather had lost his marbles and made it up. Most doubts were squashed when the doorman who witnessed the incident and helped thwart the attacker doorman. corroborated doorman corroborated 
Dan Rather's version of the events, right? So even even the guy that helped was like, yes, this happened. The guy was screaming, what's the frequency, Kenneth? As it turns out, there really was a Kenneth, and the incident may have been a monumental case of mistaken identity. Kenneth Schaefer was a music publicist turned inventor who, during what would turn out to be the tail end of the Cold War, found a way to use TVRO dishes, television receive only dishes, those big, ugly dishes in fields. Oh, my God. Oh, not the ones that people put on top of their roofs that gave my no, dad those a are, those are personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the big ones. So Kenneth Schaefer found a way to use TVRO dishes to receive Russian television broadcasts from Molniya satellites. He installed a system at the Harriman Institute for Advanced Studies of the Soviet Union at Columbia University. He even enabled a broadcast of a full week's worth of Soviet television on the Discovery Channel. And the Discovery Channel at the time was like brand new, so no one fucking watched it. So the, the fields of dishes, that's uh, from an organization called SETI, S-E-T-I. And so there's an amazingly weird article on the SETI League website that illuminates Schaefer's connection to Dan Rather's assault. So I'm going to read from, this is the article from the SETI website. Okay. Ready? In a previous column, we met my friend Kenneth Schaefer. For those of you who missed it, here's a brief recap. Kenny was, as far as anyone can determine, the first Westerner to figure out how to use TVRO receivers to intercept Soviet TV. But one of the challenges was geographical. Because of the northerly population distribution of the former Soviet Union, that region's television appetite was not well served from one of the satellites that they had access to, which orbited the equator. Um, And they had to go with the Molniya elliptical orbit satellites. This is like a science article, so I'm skipping over some (laughs) science, science stuff. Okay. What's the frequency Kenneth alludes to the incident in New York in 1986 when news anchor Dan Rather was the victim of an unprovoked attack by one or two assailants who, between beatings, would ask, what's the frequency, Kenneth? On the night in October 1986, on the night that Rather was attacked, he and Kenneth Schaefer had just left Columbia's campus where they were watching Molniya satellite download links. Together. Together. The plot thickens. When Schaefer, when Rather is asked, what's the frequency, Kenneth? Kenny Schaefer, Kenneth Schaefer, believes that this was a simple case of mistaken identity and the muggers followed the wrong man. That makes complete sense to me. Yeah. So Kenneth Schaefer actually has some more. Let's take a small detour into Kenneth Schaefer um, because he has some other ripples into pop culture. Because Soviet TV broadcasts were generally unavailable in the U.S., Kenny, I'm going to refer to him as Kenny because that's how the article refers to him. Kenny at, at Columbia set up a, a he, it drew a bunch of visitors. Like he set up screenings, Dan Rather being one of them. Other people who came to the screenings were English rock musician Gordon Sumner. Do you know who Gordon Sumner is? I really don't want to say no, but I can't say yes. He's better known as Sting. Oh, hey. So he was one of the first musicians to learn about the art scene behind the Iron, uh, Iron Curtain. And Sting was moved by the satellite viewing experience, and he composed a popular song called Russians. He was also in Dune. He was in Dune. Never forget. So this is, this is a little bit of Sting's song, Russians. 
permission to respond to all the threats and the rhetorical speeches of the Soviet. Mr. Khrushchev said. Yeah, this is basically like, do they know it's Christmas, but for Russians. It is. Such an ignorant thing to do if the Russians love their children too. How can I say? How can I save my little boy from Oppenheimer's deadly toy? Jesus Christ, stick. This is literally insane. Yes. We share the same biology, regardless of ideology. I hope the Russians love their children, too. The implication is that they don't. We have this very, like, ominous old man. Because the Russians are, like, amassing their <laughs> weapons and the U.S. isn't, apparently. But or there's he's, also... He's from England. What the fuck does he care? There's also, like, gymnastics happening. <laughs> yeah, it's like Russian ballet. So this, the um, tune of the song is from the Lieutenant Kia suite. So it's, like, part of a Russian ballet, I believe. This is wow. This is wild, Even right? for Sting. <laughs> yeah. Not Sting's best. <laughs> so some of the other visitors were American diplomats hoping to use the knowledge gained from the screen to erase international to ease international tensions. Others were TV news anchormen like Dan Rather, right? So this is this is still from DangerousMinds.net. Then there were visitors from the shadow world, oh, all okay. wanting to know how Schaefer was pulling these elusive signals out of the ether. Kenneth generally refrained from telling them, likely to, hoping to capitalize on his technology by keeping the details to himself. But when, a, when, when asked about frequencies and modulation modes, he usually changed the subject. So do we think these guys were there, like invited guests? That's a theory. Okay. So unfucking real, right? That's that's what DangerousMinds.net has to say. Unfucking real, right? We not only have Schaefer to thank or curse, depending on your alternarock tolerance level for the astonishingly durable REM song. He was possibly the intended victim of Dan Rather's beating, and he's complicit in the monstrous piece of crap Sting song. Monstrous piece of crap is an understatement. Thank you. So the last demerit, though large, is more mitigated by the fact that Kenneth Schaefer is also responsible for the monstrously awesome guitar sound on ACDC's 1980s albums go on kenneth schaefer invented a wireless guitar amplifier it wasn't actually a wireless guitar amplifier it was like a wireless transmitter receiver it was called the schaefer vega diversity system it was an early wireless transmitter for guitarists and its popularity blew up exponentially after its adoption by Ace Freely of Kiss, who had been electrocuted during a performance in Florida when his hand touched a me- touching a metal guardrail, completed a circuit with his un- with his ungrounded amp. So soon, many people began using Schaefer Vegas, like the delivery systems, so that they didn't accidentally electrocute themselves. Right, like Russell Hammond. Right, Ace Freely could have easily died. The incident was no joke, but. Other people who used the SVDS, SVDS, Schaefer Vegas delivery system, are Van Halen, Rolling Stones, Bootsy Collins, Frank Zappa. But the device's moment in the sun came 
not from any live performance. But you're it's reading used... this, right? You wouldn't just say the device's moment in the sun. Correct. I'm still reading this from DangerousMinds.net. <laughs> okay. But the device's moment in the sun <laughs> came not from any live performance, but its use in studio. Really the last place anyone needs any wireless anything. But this the, the way this worked is that the SVDS compressed the guitar signal before transmitting it and expanded it uh, when it was received by the amplifier. And so this was like a very early... Uh, it's not a tube screamer because that's a different thing, but it's a it's a different kind of distortion compression that is now coveted by guitarists everywhere. And when it expanded the signal, it boosted certain frequencies that could tend to be lost to album compression. So not only did the device wirely transmit a signal, it colored the guitar's tone in a distinctive way, creating harmonic distortions that happened to be pleasing distortions. And Angus Young of ACDC began using the wireless in the recording studio because he couldn't find another way to satisfactorily record the sound his guitar made live. So he just used his live rig in the studio. Brilliant. George Young, who is Angus Young's older brother, was Angus Young's older brother and ACDC's first producer, had suggested this idea in 1978. And then when Mutt Lang came in, who produced Highway to Hell, Back in Black, and For Those About to Rock, We Salute You, he used the same stuff that he was using for his stage sound. So this became a feature of ACDC's live performance. Angus Young goes went all over the stage. He went into the audience, all with the SVDS. So here's a little taste of the ACDC song Shoot to Thrill, which was recorded in 1980 or maybe 1979 with the SVDS in the studio. And you can hear that the guitar distortion has a ton of mid-tones, which um, other distortion pedals tend to cut out. Super rich mid-guitar tones. The Schaefer Vega's unique compression and expansion and EQ scheme turned out to be the key to ACDC's distinctively rich guitar sound, every bit as much as the guitars that they were using and the amps that they were using. Um, however, these units had to be abandoned in 1982 because of FCC regulations on wireless specs. What? Why? I don't know. I actually couldn't figure out why. This is like, this just was like, oh, the FCC doesn't like wireless transmitters or whatever. Um, but also, Schaefer, Schaefer's interests changed. They changed to Cold War satellites and TVRO signals, which led a really famous reporter to get his ass kicked on Park Avenue. Can we just talk a little bit more about the motive of these people to get mm -hmm. the possible motives to get mm -hmm. the frequency? Because I can imagine there are many. Yes. So why don't you... Why don't you tell me what you are thinking? Because there's there's more to this story, but I want to take your temperature on it right now. I mean, it can range from... Obviously, I'm thinking like top secret CIA stuff. So, so the people who were following rather accidentally meaning for it to be Kenneth were looking for the secret... There were CIA operatives looking for the secret frequency to intercept Russian satellites? No, they wouldn't be that dumb. Yeah, the CIA would, would do just do murders. Right. 
these people were just interested in CIA stuff. They were like hobbyists. Mm -hmm. They fancied themselves civilian vigilantes. Sure, which we see a lot of these days, right? Like people, faux patriots taking the law into their own hands and storming the Capitol. Yes. Okay, that's a theory. Another theory. (laughs) They were very interested in Russian porn because they'd heard there was a large market for that here and they thought they could tap into it. That's... You know, who knows? <laughs> so now it's time to talk about REM. Or what? Let's call it- that's it. No, that's not it. We're taking a pause. <laughs> taking a pause. The REM version of this song. Oh, right. So REM formed in 1980 in Augusta, Georgia. You said 1980 earlier. Did you know that for, for sure? <laughs> yes. Yes. So REM formed in 1980 in Augusta, in Augusta Georgia. They are, were Michael Stipe on vocals, Mike Mills on bass, Peter Buck on guitar, and Bill Berry on drums. Which, like, all of these names are fucking amazing. Correct. Maybe Michael Stipe is, like, the worst of the set. But they all sound like superheroes. Um, they were all students at the University of Georgia at the time. That's how well, they we Say their names again, and we'll choose what their superpower is. Bill Berry. Bill Berry. He's the drummer. So I think his I think he's got a strength power. Bill Bear eats Cheerios for breakfast and turns into Percussion Man. The Crushin Man. Crushinator. <laughs> it's per crushin. Oh, per crushin. I see, I see. Okay. Excellent. Guitarist, okay. Peter Buck. Peter Buck. The buck stops here. <laughs> buck man. <laughs> that's his that's his uh that's his catchphrase. Yes. He's like, I ate Peter Parker for breakfast. I am the you, got a, you got a lot of eating for breakfast <laughs> things in this. Well, these musicians have to start out with a hearty Hel- meal. Hearty in the morning. meal. Ba- <laughs> bassist Mike Mills. Another breakfast food. <laughs> <laughs> I think Mike Mills might be a speedster, might be a fast guy. There's something about Mike Mills and speed later on in this episode. Not, not the drug speed, just like the idea of how fast things go. All right. And Michael Stipe. I think invisibility. Okay. Tell me that, why. Because that's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion because I'm invisible. Sure, yeah. So I was able to travel up there and down there. Well, no, I think he was just like. <laughs> I'm telling just you, do it's the, not just real. do the corner and spotlight <laughs> stuff. Okay. Uh, R.E.M. was pivotal in the creation and development of alternative rock music genre. All music says that R.E.M. marked the point when post-punk, like Talking Heads, turned into alternative rock. In the early 80s, the musical style of R.E.M. stood in contrast to genres like post-punk and new wave that had preceded it. And uh, music journalist Simon Reynolds noted that the post-punk movement of the late 70s and early 80s had taken whole swaths of music off the menu, particularly that of the 1960s, and that, quote, after post-punk's demystification and new pop's schematics, it felt liberating to listen to music rooted in mystical awe and blissed-out surrender. I don't know, man. Simon Reynolds declared R.E.M. a band that recalled the music of the 60s with its plangent guitar chimes and folk-styled vocals, and who wistfully and abstractly conjured visions and new frontiers for America. 
Really, I feel like they're just like a pretty fucking boring band that wouldn't have been remembered at all if they weren't just like somehow Velcroed to Nirvana and Pearl Jam and other bands of that era. I, w- I So this is literally like part of their story is that they are Velcroed to Nirvana and I don't quite understand why because they don't <laughs> sound like Nirvana at all. But right. This guy, Simon Reynolds, says R.E.M. is one of the two most important alt-rock bands of the day with the release of Murmur, which was their first record. R.E.M. had the most impact musically and commercially of the developing alternative genres, early groups, and leaving in its wake a number a number of, of like pretenders, like people who wanted to sound like R.E.M. Like who? I don't know. They don't really say. I don't, I don't really care that much either. Like I don't want to listen to an R.E.M. knockoff. Big like head top but, like when REM ended, like the offspring came in. Like I don't know what they're talking about. I think I think REM. I mean, like they're not they're nothing special because they were like the fathers of the of that style of music. And that style of music like doesn't isn't really all that energetic to begin with. I'd rather listen to Gin Blossom than REM. Wow. Now who's the hater? <laughs> So our, I mentioned R.E.M.'s first album was called Murmur. It was released in 1983, and their first single was called Radio Free Europe. So here's a little bit of Radio Free Europe. So do you know this song? It sounds familiar. Yeah, I, I say. So I definitely hear the sixties influence. And the melodic influence. Mm-hmm. But I do not hear the connection to any grudge stuff. Maybe just like that. Yeah, Otherwise maybe. nothing. I hear I hear more pixies in this than Nirvana, but this yeah. is also ten years before Nevermind comes out, so like I don't know, whatever. Um okay, moving on. Maybe it's like that slumpy delivery. Yeah, maybe. The mum the mumbliness. Yeah. REM made its first national television debut on the David Letterman show in October of eighty-three. They played Radio Free Europe and a song that was untitled at the time, but eventually was called South Central Rain Parentheses I'm Sorry. South Central Rain Parentheses I'm Sorry became the first single from the band's second album called Reckoning, which came out in eighty four. Okay. So this is a little bit of South Central Rain, parentheses, I'm sorry, from the David Letterman show. Ugh, we hate David Letterman. You hate David Letterman. I'm kind of indifferent toward him. Thank you, folks. Welcome back. This is uh, R.E.M. Peter Buck. Nice job, Peter. Nice meeting you, sir. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm sorry, your name again, sir? Mike, nice to see you, sir. Uh, R.E.M., is it rapid eye movement or is it other things also? 
could be anything you want it to. We found it in the dictionary, and it was short and concise and didn't particularly mean anything to us, so, yeah. <laughs> Good enough. Uh, you're from Athens, Georgia? Now, it's true that there are new bands coming out of Athens, Georgia, right? Quite a few, yeah. Now, why, why would that be? Why all of a sudden Athens, Georgia? There's Not that it isn't a, a fine community. Where is it? Is it a fine community? It's a fine college town. Fine college town. Well, what, is there an explanation behind that? Oh, yeah, there's a lack of anything else to do there. Yeah. No, there's not. Uh, who else is from there? Uh, Herschel Walker. Herschel Walker, yeah. We have his album. We'll be listening Eagle, to that a little bit. Uh, but the, the B-52s? Pylon, Pylon. Tractor, the Method Actors. Yeah, but is there a reason for that or just... No, it's a college town. A lot of kids just trying to waste time creatively, I guess. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll take your word for it. Uh, this guy's on fucking national television being like, why are you asking me these questions? <laughs> yeah. nope. so is it working? Are people buying it? Yeah, it's working fine. What's the price of it? Six ninety-eight. And what is Well, that's the list. It should be cheaper if you can find it. Yeah. Uh, and, and what is the, the price of other albums? $8.98. So, this is, yeah, good. Well, that's a good idea. Why didn't they make them all cheaper? <laughs> Yeah, no. Money talks, folks. Uh, now, the, the song you're going to do now is a, uh, I understand, is a brand new song. Uh, you want to explain the name of it or anything about it? It doesn't have one. It's too new. Too, too new to be named. All right. Um, are you gentlemen ready? But this okay, is like uh, a strange time capsule of like when of you would you just be a band here, on nice David Letterman being like, this is a brand new one. Right. We don't even know the name. Yeah. So to me, this sounds like I'll stop the world and melt with you. Right, so they're incorporating like new waves, 60s stuff, making it this new thing. remember this song from like a movie yeah it's in something so this is another strange thing about rem is that they had like a, a real hit on basically all of their records until the 2000s interesting but their first top 10 hit came from their 1987 album called document and it's the one i love oh yeah everyone this, knows that song right yeah the reason that everyone knows that song is it's three choruses in a row with no verses. <laughs> that's, that's not a verse. <laughs> Document also had It's the End of the World as We Know It on there, which peaked at number 69. Nice. But has since been certified silver. So it has had the long, much longer oh, tail. A long tail. A long tail. Um, Document was the first time that they went platinum in album sales, and the album itself hit number 10 on Billboard. Then their following record, Green, went two times platinum. And then Losing My Religion was their first top five hit. It peaked at number four. And it went platinum itself on their record, Out of Time. And thanks to that, Out of Time went four times platinum and hit number one on Billboard. Automatic for the People came out in 1992. That had Man on the Moon on it, Everybody Hurts, and Night Swimming. That went four times platinum and hit number two on Billboard. So, like, I'm not saying it was overnight, but at 10 years after they form, they are, they, they're going platinum four yeah. albums in a row. They're a right. huge band. Right. Everybody Hurts. That's not a bad song. No, I like, I don't dislike R.E.M. That's you. I don't dislike them either. I'm just like, 
if someone's like, what, what band should I put on right now? I would never, never be R. like, R.E.M. Yeah. R. E. <laughs> I think Cake is kind of a better version of R.E.M. I like Cake. I like Cake, too. And so Automatic for the People came out in 92, had Man on the Moon on it, Everybody Hurts, Night Swimming, four times platinum, number two on Billboard. So now they're doing their ninth album, which is called Monster. Monster. <laughs> this is from the R.E.M. fandom wiki. Uh, I'll tell you, there's a, a place of a frequent sentence. Yeah, it's true. Um, <laughs> there's a reason why you'll see. Um, so REM began working on Monster in August of 1993, and what's the frequency? Kenneth came out about. Uh, I'm sorry, came about two months later in October of 93. The song was written and recorded in New Orleans, and they also did Tongue and Crush with Eyeliner, which was their, which were their like big singles from monster but uh this is what this is what michael stipe singer of rem had to say about what's the frequency kenneth in 1994 i wrote that protagonist as a guy who's desperately trying to understand what motivates the younger generation who has gone to great lengths to, to try to figure them out and at the end of the song it's completely fucking bogus he got nowhere Okay, he beat up a guy for no reason. This, yeah, the so guy's I, older than Dan Rather that's beating him up? Well, we still don't know who beat up Dan Rather. And, okay, also Dan Rather is only old now. Yeah, so I think it was inspired by this beating, but I, I think <laughs> the protagonist of the story is not the guy beating up Dan Rather. It's not. I don't think so. So, side note on this recording. Mike Mills, the bassist, so this is what the REM fandom wiki says, and this has been quoted in numerous articles. Numerous articles quoted the REM fandom wiki. No, have quoted, have, have corroborated this story that I'm about to tell you. Okay, thank you. Although not obviously audible, the song slows, uh, what's the frequency, Kenneth, slows down slightly toward the end. The original tempo is 96 BPM, and it goes down to 94 BPM. And this is because bassist Mike Mills was in severe pain and following his lead, the band continued to record the song until the end, but he slowed down because he was in such pain. And then he was taken to the hospital where it was discovered that he had appendicitis. And During the recording of the song? Yes. Oh, my God. And it disrupted parts of the 1995 Monster Tour, resulting in dates for between July and but like 10 days in July to be canceled. And R.E.M. never got around to re-recording the song. Clearly. This is widely accepted uh, by sources all over the internet. However, Mike Mills himself disputes this. Oh, what so does he have to say? He said on Twitter, this is not true on any level. I didn't get sick during the song. The bass player can't slow the song down by themselves. And I didn't have appendicitis. Hashtag diverticulitis. Oh, interesting. So misinformation. Misinformation. Print the legend. So What's the Frequency, Kenneth, made its first live TV debut in November of 1994, November 12th, 1994, for Saturday Night Live, which was recorded at NBC Studios in New York City. However, this was not the first time a song was written and recorded about Dan Rather getting beat up Ooh. called What's the Frequency, Kenneth. Wait, okay. I wasn't surprised that there would be another song, but they have the same name. Technically, no. This one's called Kenneth. What's the frequency? 
Okay, let's hear it. So uh, this is from Rolling Stone from Brianna Ehrlich. So when CBS News anchor Dan Rather was assaulted in 1986, not one but two songs were born. The first song was in 1987, and it's called Kenneth What's the Frequency by a band called Game Theory on their album Lolita Nation. And this came out a year after the attack, 1987. So this is Game Theory's Kenneth, What's the Frequency? Do we think R.E.M. knew about this and stole their idea? We'll see. Okay, we'll see. This is just the alternate audio track from the Wonka Tunnel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, real quick on game theory, the band, not the theory, not what game theory is. They inspired Devo. They did inspire. Well, so they're contemporaries of Devo. They were founded in 1982 by singer-songwriter Scott Miller, and they, com- quote, combined melodic jangle pomp with dense experimental production and hyper-literate lyrics. MTV described their sound as still visceral and vital all the way in 2013, with records full of sweet, psychedelic-tinged, appealingly idiosyncratic gems that influenced a new generation of indie artists. This sounds like douchebaggery. It does sound like douchebaggery. I think that, by the way, I think that this was written by Game Theory themselves. This is like part of their bio. Uh, Between 82 and 90, Game Theory released five studio albums and two EPs, which went out of print until 2014 when a small indie label called Omnivore Recordings remastered and reissued their whole catalog. Great. Scott Miller of Game Theory was the first musician to get inspiration from this, this incident. Okay, and he threw it into the song as an Easter egg, but the whole song is not a fucking song. So, like, saying that there's an it's Easter kinda, egg, it's kind of a song. I just feel like this is a little bit weird because <clears throat> that there is no song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the The producer of the record, Lolita Nation, his name is Mitch Easter, and uh, Mitch Easter said that Scott Miller is like James Joyce with a guitar. "Quote: His lyrics are delightful. If you want to pick out all the stuff that's in them." He told Rolling Stone. I'm rolling my eyes at that. His lyrics are not lyrics. They are lyrics. <laughs> well, but only, are they lyrical? <laughs> we've only heard one of their songs. Okay. Scott Miller died in 2013. He found the distance from Rolling Stone. He found the Dan Rather story charming in its bizarreness. I'm sure Dan Rather thought it was very charming. Yes. Well, we'll, t- we'll actually see a little bit of Dan Rather being charmed in a minute. Oh, great. Uh, So this is once again, according to Mitch Easter, who produced the record, quote, I think we just created the whole thing in my studio and made it sound like he was on the street and he wanted to refer. He wanted to refer to the incident. That was the idea. Monster, the REM album, came out a bit later and they had a song with a similar name. And it was like, that's weird. I don't know if they're aware of the game theory thing. They probably aren't. (laughs) (laughs) 
Scott Miller in 2002, before nine years, 11 years before he died, he also reflected on the similar song titles, and he said, to tell the truth, I would be flattered and not even the tiniest bit irked if they somehow unconsciously got the idea from my record. But I think Michael Stipe probably wrote the lyric, and I think Peter Buck was the only REM member who knew Game Theory existed. <laughs> so it probably doesn't quite add up that it was a direct influence. Even if it was, would we call it an influence? It's like, I saw Toilet, and then I wrote a song called, called Toilet. Flushy Flushy. I heard this band <laughs> has a song called Flushy Flushy. <laughs> um, but in another weird coincidence spotting, Mitch Easter also worked with R.E.M. on some of their earlier albums, but he wasn't present when What's the Frequency Kenneth was written by either band. And he just knows that, that R.E.M. was intrigued with the incident as well. Or was he? Is this the time travel incident? Okay, here we go. <laughs> so he thinks that, so Mitch, Mitch Easter thinks that the, this is Stipe, Michael Stipe is singing about getting tunnel vision from the outsider's screen, youth culture, media. So like kind of what's the frequency Kenneth incident adjacent, right? The producer of Monster, whose name is Scott Litt, declined to be interviewed by Rolling Stone about whether or not R.E.M. stole this idea from Game Theory. Interesting. So. Maybe he was busy, but fine. This is from Mental Floss. Back to Mental Floss. The incident was strange, but it got even stranger. On August 31st, 1994, so just before What's the Frequency Kenneth made its big debut, a North Carolina man named William Tagger shot and killed an NBC technician named Campbell Montgomery outside of the sound studio of the Today Show. What? Why? Tagger had tried to enter the studio with an assault rifle and... As one does. And Campbell Montgomery died in an attempt to block him, block him from entering. Who is he trying to kill? Well, Tagger was arrested and he told police that the television network had been monitoring him for years and beaming secret messages into his head. And he apparently came to NBC looking for a way to block those transmissions. Has he heard of tinfoil? Well, I guess it wasn't working. <laughs> this is from the New York Times. Over the course of a decade, it evolved from an incomprehensible utterance during a quizzical crime to the possible measure of a news, news anchor's unraveling to a kernel of kitschy folklore memorialized is, as the title of the popular hit by R.E.M. Kenneth What's the frequency became more than just the question that Dan Rather said that he was asked during the 1986 attack. Now it seems like there may be answers. As the Daily News, this is from 1997. As the Daily News first reported on Wednesday, according to Mr. Rather and law enforcement officials, the man who punched and kicked him appears to be the same man who in 1994 fatally shot an NBC stagehand outside of the Today Show. How does this appear? Well, from both, cameras outside. It appears so, so you're so you're you're take you're mincing the New York Times' <laughs> words. The paper of record. <laughs> New York Times goes on. In both cases, the motive was distrust and suspicion of the news media, said Dr. Park Dietz, who is a forensic psychiatrist who examined William Tager after the shooting of Campbell Montgomery, who was 33 when he died. It's Trump. Trump's the time traveler, isn't he? getting warmer dr Dietz said in a telephone interview that mr tager who's serving 12 and a half to 25 years for manslaughter believed that the messages were being broadcast directly to him on the evening news 
this is still New York Times. Mr. Tager's lawyer, John Esposito, did not return a phone call to his office, but has said he's not convinced that his client attacked Dan Rather. But he did. Yeah, because when Mr. Tager was arrested for the fatal shooting, he did claim responsibility for the attack against Dan Rather. And then Dan Rather, I witnessed him. Yeah, the authorities identified him. The authorities didn't investigate it because the five-year statute of limitations had expired. But Miss Dr. Dietz, the guy who the forensic psychologist, psychiatrist who examined him, wanted to determine if Mr. Tager was lying about the attack against Dan Rather on the Upper East Side. So in 1996, he contacted Dan Rather to see if Rather's memories of the crime matched Tager's accounts, and they did. Dr. Dietz said that there were certain details about the, the building in which parts of the attack occurred that both Dan Rather and Tager recalled identically in 1997 dan rather looked at the photographs of mr tager provided to him by the daily news and identified tager as the attacker okay but it was 11 years later so who knows what are your questions my question was like does he think that the news is getting beamed to him Hmm. like they're talking to him through his tv but i know it's in his head or does he think that like they're beaming the news to everyone, but they're fucking around and beaming it right to his head. Let's find out. Do you see the difference? I, I, I do. The answer is neither. <laughs> okay. So a uh, quick side note. This is from the Buffalo News. Campbell Montgomery's widow filed a $100 million lawsuit against the owner of the Rockefeller Center. The lawsuit filed in the state Supreme Court in Manhattan accuses Rockefeller Center, where NBC had its studio, for failing to provide adequate security and supervision at the glassed-in television studio where the Today Show is produced. Now, all those panes of glass are bulletproof. The lawsuit filed also names the security firm and the Chinese gun company, Norinco, as well as Century Arms, which is the American importer of the AK-47 that was used in the shooting. So the widow of Campbell Montgomery sued NBC, sued the security firm that was supposed to protect everybody, and the Chinese gun company, and the U.S. arms importer Mm. for $100 million. Mm. What about the legislators that just didn't give a fucking shit about gun control? Well, the legislators are are what stopped her from being able to sue gun manufacturers because of course they were so back Sorry, to I just threw up in my mouth yeah right back to mental floss Taylor was convicted of murder sentenced to 25 years in sing sing prison his story took a sci-fi twist when he told a psychiatrist that he was a time traveler from a parallel world from the year 2265 okay all right i'm listening he was a convicted felon in the future And Tager said that he was a test pilot volunteer in a dangerous time travel experiment. And if he was successful on his mission, his sentence would be overturned and he would be set free. The authorities in the future kept tabs on him via an implanted chip in his brain. During the examinations, Tager also confessed that he had attacked Dan Rather because he mistook him for the vice president of his future world, Kenneth Burroughs. Okay. So the future people really failed this guy. Yes. Future, the future prison system <laughs> needs some reform. 
So forget about Kenneth, the SETI satellite guy. Tager himself says that he's from the year 2265. He was sent back in time and he mistook to, to kill somebody, I guess. And Kenneth, he was no, no, he mistook. He, he attacked Dan rather because he mistook him for the vice president of his Kenneth, future world. Named Kenneth, Kenneth. named Kenneth. Are we really still naming people Ken in 2260 whatever? No. 65. Fuck no. But that wasn't his mission, I don't think. So oh this also this also happens to be the plot of the movie 12 Monkeys. Are you sure? Yeah, we're going to watch the trailer. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No license, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was adjusted to the eyeballs. What year is this? I'm watching this tonight. It's great. It's a really good movie. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys. He's been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world? No, sir. He needs help. I think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact oh, science. Oh, yeah, it's great. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did it get there? I don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be unknown. I can help you. Get you out. Monkeys. The thing mutates, we live underground! They're watching you. I just want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet. Watch the frequency! So, here's the thing. The the premise of 12 Monkeys is that Bruce Willis is a future prisoner he gets sent back to the 90s because there is a virus that has forced all mankind underground and he'll get a reduced sentence if he figures out how the who who spread the virus and how it was created the th- the going theory is that it was uh created and spread by this army of the 12 monkeys which they don't really know what it is but they see like graffiti everywhere it says army of 12 monkeys and uh and so this is the premise of the movie and this is also kind of his, uh, this guy Tager's like explanation mm-hmm. of, of what happened, right? Except for 12 Monkeys came out after Tager was arrested. How many years? Uh, one and one half. Okay, so it's implausible to think that Tager was the inspiration for the film because that would just be too fast of a turnaround. No, and also... This film was loosely inspired by a 60s movie called Le Jeté, 
So he may have Tager may have been inspired by the same short, French short film from 1962 called Le Jeté by Chris Marker, where mm-hmm. which is like the ba- the basic plot of Twelve Monkeys as well. Um, but I doubt it because it's not a real uh, popular movie. Does Tager strike you as a real popular kind of guy? I don't know. Let's let's figure out if he watched Le Jeté by Chris Marker. It's a great movie. Um, <laughs> And there's yet another strand of intrigue to the tale. In 2001, Paul Limbert Altman wrote a speculative piece about the incident for Harper's Magazine. In exploring the work of postmodern fiction writer Donald Barthelm, this guy, Paul Limbert Altman, discovered that his stories have a recurring character named Kenneth and the phrase, what's the frequency? Donald Barthelme and Dan Rather were the same age and from the same hometown. What? And as young men, they both worked as journalists. No, now you're just pulling my leg. Nope. They're from Houston, <laughs> Texas. And as young men, they both worked as journalists. This guy, Paul Liver Altman, thought it was reasonable to assume that their paths may have crossed at some point. Furthermore, in one of Barthelme's books, there's a character named Lather who is a conceited editor of a newspaper who bears a striking resemblance to Dan Rather. What? The unspoken question was, did Barthelm somehow inspire Tager's attack on Dan Rather? That is the question. Unfortunately, Barthelm died in 1989. And his his brother, Frederick, who was also a writer, has refused to comment on any connection. Why? What kind of writer just refuses to comment? I listen, but also like, what the fuck? I'm so confused. So there are now three equally plot. Well, no, I wouldn't say equally plausible, but there are three <laughs> theories. One, and they're all contradictory. One is that he was following this satellite guy and wanted to know what the satellite frequency was, Kenneth. The other is that he's a future future criminal from 2265 and Dan Rather looks just like Kenneth Burroughs. And that's the one that he's going with. <laughs> and the third one is that he was inspired by this like postmodern fiction writer who may have known Dan Rather. The that one doesn't make sense. It doesn't ma- I mean cuz it's like we don't have the internet. We have no answers. Well, we have no, no we answers. Do- where is what's his name right now well we'll get to it there's another dan rather scandal that happened in the mid-2000s so this is the killian documents controversy has anyone anyone have you heard of the killian documents controversy also referred to as memo gate or rather gate so six documents containing false allegations about president george w bush and his service in the Air National Guard were sent to CBS News. And they were allegedly written in 1973. And rather thought that he had broken another Watergate and that there was this huge scandal of George W. Bush when he was in the Texas Air National Guard. But it turns out that... And and he broke this news less than two months before the 2004 presidential election. But it was later found out that CBS failed to authenticate the documents 
And several typography experts soon concluded that they were forgeries because they were composed using Microsoft Word, not a typewriter. Mm-hmm. Microsoft Word wasn't around 1973. Impossible. Unless. Unless. What's the only other logical explanation? Time travel. Time travel. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Bill Burkett is the one who provided the documents to CBS, but he claimed to have burned the originals after faxing the copies to CBS. Because he was so afraid. I guess. Or because Burkett, he made them up. I think because he, he made them up. Burkett, <laughs> Bill Burkett claimed that Bush's commander, who's Lieutenant Colonel Jerry B. Killen, wrote them, which included criticisms of Bush's service in the Air, in the Air National Guard during the 70s. And the 60 Minutes segment rather stated that the documents were taken from Lieutenant Colonel Killian's personal files, and he falsely asserted that they had been authenticated by experts retained by CBS. And the authenticity of the documents was challenged within hours, and internet forums had found anachronisms in the typography showing that they were um, composed on Microsoft Word. And I can, I'm going to send you a little GIF that shows the, to the proof that they were composed on Word. I would like to see the proof. So, so this is also a film. This is also a film? Yeah. The Killian Memos film? I think it's called Truth or like the Yeah, truth? I'm sure that I'm and they did like a version of this on the newsroom. There's a lot of stuff like this. This one's like Kate Blanchett and Robert Redford though. It's not like YouTube. What year? I have to go look it up. I'm not I'm not a fucking The newsroom like for <laughs> like the HBO show. Truth 2015 IMDb. Great. Topher Grace is in it. Dennis Quaid. Uh, oh, the reuniting that um, the movie where he fucks his daughter. Topher Grace fucks Dennis Quaid's daughter. I okay. forget what it's called. But yeah, so you can see in this GIF that it is a doctored, doctored uh, document composed on Microsoft Word and then like aged. And because uh, the spacing is all modern, like you can't do that on typewriter or especially in the 70s. So this ended Rather's career. He defended no, the... he has a career. Well, this ended his career at CBS. Okay. So he like, defended the... I hear what he has to say every day on social media. <laughs> uh, he defended the authenticity and usage of the documents for two weeks. Um, and then... Surprisingly, Brian Wilson still has a career. But... Brian Williams? Brian Wilson is the... Beach Boys guy? My bad. Brian Williams, whose daughter... Yeah, who lied about being the, the heli- in the helicopter. Yes, and his daughter, Allison, right? That's her name. Yeah. Has a Star career. Star Get Out. She's You're, terrible. He's terrible. But, well, yeah, Dan Rather got But be got confused bamboozled. about some documents and you're out? Well, but he... We just don't have heels. the same standards for journalists anymore. We, we don't, but he also <laughs> dug his heels in for two. I'm not saying that... He got railroaded. Don't get me wrong. But like, because he because he went on TV for two weeks and defended those documents, there's no way he comes back from that. Um, so he finally, uh, on September 20th, 2004, said, if I knew then what I know now, I would not have gone ahead with the story as it was aired. And I certainly would not have used the documents in question. Obviously. And so they fired basically everybody. They fired the producer of the show, several senior news executives and... Um, and Dan Rather left CBS. Should we watch the trailer? For the, for the Killian documents movie, Truth? Yes. Sure. Why did you get into journalism? Curiosity. 
Why'd you get into it? It is a good rather. You. Ladies you. and gentlemen, I give you my friend, Dan Rather. Oh, I love a Bruce Greenwood. I'm the producer. I put the team together. We have oh, she basically is the same character from uh, Don't Look Up. Mike Smith, who was a researcher for us back in 2000. What's our next move? I might have something for the election. The president of the United States may have gone AWOL from the military. <gasps> Elizabeth Moss? Those parts of his file they didn't like, they tossed in a wastebasket. Do you have these documents? These really are the holy grail of documents. You've got three hours. We're out of time. Start uploading. Go! Go, 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 go! Tonight, we have new information on the president's military service. Here's to a great story. Hey, Mary, these blogs are saying that the memos can be recreated in Microsoft Word. Several experts have raised serious questions. They're going to start an investigation. This is bad. They do not get to do this. They do not get to smack us just for asking the question. They want to talk to your source. No. It's bad. I never should have asked a question. You got to make your case, honey. You have to fight. I would watch this movie. Somebody <laughs> has got to confirm those memos. This isn't a trial. This is a hunt. I don't really like Topher Grace in anything besides 70s, but... What we are talking about is you bringing your politics into your reporting. You don't like him as Venom? Where does politics not Enough. enter into this? Our story was about whether the president fulfilled his service. Nobody wants to talk about that. They want to talk about fonts and forgeries. And they hope to God the truth gets lost in the scrum. But this is, this is the point I want to make. Two times, Dan Rather has tried to go after George, a George Bush. <laughs> and both times, for, for valid reasons, right? And both times, the Bush in question has been able to turn the tables, make the story about Rather, and get a boost for it. They'd rather him go down. Yeah. So, in 2010... William Tagger was released from prison on good behavior. Oh, okay. He, cur- he currently lives in New York City where he's closely monitored by parole officers and mental health counselors. Well, at least we don't live in New York City. On September 21st, 2011, REM announced via its website that it was calling it a day as a band. Stipe had said that he hopes fans realize that it wasn't an easy decision and all things must end and we wanted to do it right to do it our way the longtime associate their longtime associate and former warner brothers senior vice president of emerging technology whose name is ethan kaplan ethan kaplan speculated that the shakeups at their record label influenced the group the group's decision to call it a day but i think they were just avoid avoiding william the newly free william tager <laughs> they had to break up or else or else in September of 2021, a full decade after breaking up, Stipe reiterated that the band had no intention of regrouping. We decided when we split up that it would be really tacky and probably money-grabbing to get back together, which might be the impotence for a lot of bands to get back together, but not us. Can someone tell Fish that? I mean, Fish should have never been a band in the first place. <laughs> so today, we're going out on a 1995 performance at Madison Square Garden of What's the Frequency, Kenneth, Ooh. which later appeared on The Letterman Show, Ugh. where Dan Rather joined R.E.M. on stage to perform the song. 
This is a Madison Square Garden recording that was played on Letterman in which Dan Rather came on stage. And sang What's the Frequency, Kenneth? Perfection. Let's do it. David Letterman is a misogynist creep. And that's my dog barking in the background. She hates misogyny. Yes, whomst among among us. Where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. For longer and weirder stuff, send us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. It's the best way to never miss an episode. Give us a rate and review. It helps other people find us. And tune in next week when we do this all over again, maybe with a special guest. Maybe. Maybe. So until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, what is, what is the frequency, Kenny? Where's the fire? Kenny. <laughs>